my name is Nancy. I'm a grateful Al-Anon. I'm giving you my whole name because I'm not anonymous in the program, and I figure if you ever come to Denver, call me. <laughs> my home group is It Works If You Work It, Al-Anon Family Groups, a Saturday noon at the Alcohol Recovery Center in Boulder on Iris and Broadway. Come by. It's a great meeting. I'm glad you asked me to come here. This has been fantastic. I, I want to thank you. The Alma program this morning was great. I've been eating until I'm sick. <laughs> and the hospitality and the fun. I walked in last night. It was about 5 till 7, and Lois had told me, get here at 7, we'll feed you. And I showed up, and she fed me. <laughs> and I walked into a room where no one was a stranger. And everybody was hugging me and made me feel at home. And I know every face because I know every story and you already know my story. I'm just the one that gets to stand up here today and say it for all of us. And I hope there's something that, that will touch your heart. You know, an Allegheny Indian said one time that when we talk to each other, when I speak to you and you speak to me, our hearts touch. And so today I get to touch yours and you get to touch mine. When I was driving up here from Denver, I was getting more and more relaxed. You know, the shoulder muscles were relaxing, and I was going, <sighs> and it was feeling so good the further I got from Denver, and I thought, now why is that, as if there was supposed to be a reason? <laughs> and um, I realized that there were so few decisions. I just kept going, and I had to make two turns. And it made it really, really nice. <laughs> there were no decisions. You know, when you drive in Denver, it's this cognitive quick draw. <laughs> and um, people are taking things pretty seriously. And, um, uh, you know, up here, I'm driving down the street, and I'm passing along, and I'm thinking I should see Highway 71 somewhere, trying to go to my motel to take a nap at noon today. And I'm passing along, and somebody turns in front of me because I'm taking so long and kind of waves. And I thought, oh, this reminds me of home. It's a lot different than those salutes you get in Denver with one finger, you know. <laughs> feels good. I think the reason it feels like home is because it's a lot like home. I was born in Dodge City, Kansas, and raised in Garden. And, um, and I'm a Kansas girl. And, um, and Kansas has a lot of mixed memories for me. When I was growing up uh, down there, my family was a Bible Bell church-attending family. And they looked really good in the community. But I knew what was going on at home. And it was not the same thing. You know, if we could draw a family tree, the disease of alcoholism wouldn't have been horrible. When I think of the people in my family that have been affected by alcoholism in one way or another, it goes back generation on generation. It's this horrible negative spiral that doesn't stop. And um, they love to get together and tell those stories. Oh, they're the funniest stories. And everybody just laughs. There's so many stories to tell. And, uh, you know, they, they really get a kick out of topping each other's story of, of alcoholism in our family. Um, one of them is a great-grandfather who was a Methodist circuit rider. 
And he stood about four foot ten, and he had seven sons, all over six feet. And he whipped them all, and when they were twenty years old, put them on a mule with a gold piece and sent them off. Said, don't you ever come back. That's the kind of family life I had inherited. It was wonderful, right? Real cohesive, really well. Back in 1961, when they had one of those lovely internationals like they had this year, this past year, Bill W., Bill Wilson, he's not an honest either, spoke and he said, you know, family relationships are the hardest to heal because they are the most warped. They are the most warped. And uh, I was born into one of those warped families that were so affected for so many generations. We didn't know what healthy or normal was anymore. A lot of secrets. <clears throat> one time when I was little, my aunt, who, if she had lived this past year, would have celebrated her 30th birthday in AA. She's a fantastic lady. And um, I loved her so much. You know, that's something that I've noticed about alcoholics. They grab life and just pull it to them. On page 132 in the big book, it says, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. I believe it. Drunk or sober. It's the most fantastic characteristic, and it's what has drawn me to alcoholics, is this full uh, living of life. And she did. She did. She had a cigarette holder and peroxided hair, and she wore a mink whether she was sweating or not, and she felt good about it. <laughs> and she'd tell you how it was, honey. <laughs> well, before she got sober, she came to visit us out in western Kansas, and that alone would have been culture shock. But we were living a lie and saying nobody drank around there, and we weren't supposed to mention alcohol. And I was carefully coached ahead of time. You know, families with secrets conduct learning sessions of we don't talk about this and we don't talk about that. And so all of us kids were told, don't mention alcohol to Aunt Tilly. And um, I listened to the lesson. But when we were at the picnic and she said, you know, this would be a good barbecue if we had some beer around here. And I assumed the stands at five or six. I already knew the stands. And I said, we don't drink around here. And she looked at me like I had crawled out from under a rock and she said, says who? She knew. <laughs> I knew there were lots of secrets in that family because I was one of them. I was sexually abused as a child, and you didn't talk about that. I had that unspoken message, nobody says anything. And I lived in fear and trembling that the bedroom door would open. And I can remember the sound of spider rib bushes pushing against my window, and I hate the sound of them to this day. You know, those memories that are combined of hearing and smelling and seeing memories, it's hard to get them out of your head. And I can remember going to a church pageant, you know, the, the living Christmas, and my dad was playing Joseph, my mom was playing Mary, my little brother was baby Jesus, and I'm sitting there looking in that, at that pageant thinking, we, you know, we don't look like who we are, because I knew the real family. 
I had so many mixed messages and I didn't understand how to sort them all out. It was too confusing. I let other people's confidence magnify my low self-esteem. The better everybody else looked, the worse I felt inside. I just knew how incapable and unworthy I was. I felt like I had no value system or no moral system of my own. I just had to pretend I had yours. But worse than that, I had to borrow other people's gods. I had no god of my own because I was sure I had been forgotten. I was forgotten by everybody else, except when somebody needed to use or abuse me. Now see, there's a double-edged sword to that because as I assumed that victim's stance, I got off scot-free. If I could blame somebody else, I didn't have to take responsibility. It was your fault. And I was really good at that. Really good at blaming other people for what I chose to do. Well, I met my husband on a blind date when I was doing a lot of fun, carefree living in college. And we had um, people in common that we knew, my cousin, his best friend, so on, set us up on a blind date. I was going to school at the University of New Mexico at that time. I did a lot of university hopping. I went to the University of Kansas, University of Miami, you know, just as soon as I figured out what was going on, I'd go to a new school. And uh, I got to the University of New Mexico, and they set me up with this long, tall cowboy, and we were going to go to a sheriff's posse dance. I think I must have been looking for somebody who would be the solutions to my problem, but I didn't know it all come in one bundle. Six foot four tall with dark, curly hair and dimples and blue eyes, Irish to boot. I mean, this guy had it all. And you know, there's something about the way a guy walks in cowboy boots. I just love it. The way those hips move. I was sunk. I was. And then he could poke us. Man, could that guy poke us. He still does. We'll have our 25th wedding anniversary this summer. And it's just because of our higher power. That long, tall cowboy was going to rescue me from myself. Because he seemed to know exactly where he was going and what he was doing. He was doing that grabbing life and pulling it to him. Man, was he ever. Both hands. And I don't know how he did that when they were both around me. But he did it. We got married. And I kept on going to school. He was working. And um, I decided I'd... I'd go ahead and go on for my master's. You know, I thought that if I had a degree, I'd, I'd be maybe worth something. I found out a degree is just like a thermometer, you know, where you stick those. <laughs> but it sounded good. We were living in a little 8 by 35 foot trailer. And it was nothing but a living room kitchen thing, and then this little tiny bathroom, and then the bedroom. And we had a king-size bed. I mean, this was a big man. And so the bed filled the bedroom. I had to get on the bed to make it. So you couldn't undress in the living room, you know, I mean in the bedroom. So we would, when we were going to bed, we'd just be somewhere around the house in various stages of undress. And that's usually when we'd start our fights. Boy, could we fight. We still can. But we fought about the most important things, like nasal spray. <laughs> And he'd try to, your nose is plugged up, and I'm not going to have you snoring tonight. You take this nasal spray. And I said, I won't put that goddamn stuff in my nose. And we were at it. 
the nasal spray ended out the door, and then he'd go, now see, he was probably all undressed except for his BBDs and his cowboy boots. They were the last thing to go on. And he'd go to the closet and pull out that red shirt. Every time we had a fight, he'd pull out that red shirt, put it on, uh, maybe with nothing else. I can remember one time he walked out with nothing but cowboy boots on and that red shirt. I don't know where he went, but he didn't come back all night. And he'd walk out, and I'd sink down in a heap on the living room floor, just crying, thinking, this is it. He'll never come back. And what will I do if he leaves my life? Because I'm only worthwhile because he's in my life. And I was just terrified. I eventually threw that red shirt away because I thought that would stop the fights. <laughs> Didn't do it. We moved that trailer out onto a little piece of land out north of Albuquerque that we bought. And we were all alone out there. There was nothing. It was at the foot of the uh, mountains there. And... Um, you know, nobody was out there now when you go to Albuquerque. There's lots of stuff there, but we were all alone back then. And we had this um, groundbreaking or housewarming party and several cakes and lots of stuff going on. And uh, when everybody had disappeared at the end of the party, there was quite a bit of beer left in that keg. And Tom laid down under it, just opened the spigot and let it run out into him. And um, he got into the tub and... You know, I was out cleaning up all the mess, and he called me in there and said, Nancy, I can't feel my hands, I can't feel my legs, I can't move. It was the first time I'd ever seen him totally paralyzed. It wasn't going to be the last. But I knew so little about alcoholism, I didn't know how close to death he was that night from alcohol poisoning. I just thought he was being weird. And I left him in the tub. What else can you do with a 220-pound man who's paralyzed in a tub that's only about three feet long? He looked like a little uh, grasshopper in there, but I couldn't get him out. I was littler than myself, and I couldn't do anything about it. But it frightened me because we had no phone and no neighbors, and, you know, I didn't want to leave him. And so I sat on the toilet, talked to him. He stayed in the tub. I let the water out and put a blanket on him, and he went to sleep there, and eventually I went to bed. But I think about that now because I think there were so many things I didn't know. Maybe it was a blessing I didn't, because I went muddling on. We had five years there to learn how to grow up together, and then we got some children. We didn't know where they came from. They just started appearing, three in three years. <laughs> Whatever we were doing was working. <laughs> And it was a new focus to my life. Instead of ranting at him about his drinking, I had somebody else to love and somebody to love me. And for a while, that was a blessing in our lives. And he got some space, and I got some relief too. But you know, the thing that happened with the kids was I started getting really uncomfortable with the drinking in a new perspective, like... I realized that when we all got in the car for a family trip, the only one we were worried about having something to drink was Tom <laughs> and nobody else. We, I mean, here little babies, and we got in the car, and we had the six-pack, but I'd forget the bottles. And, I, you know, I realized, even then, vaguely, that my focus was all wrong. But I, I never came to terms with that. I just sort of thought, well, you know, it'll all work out. But I was doing a lot of nagging. And when we got our 
when we had our 10th wedding anniversary, see, our children had grown up to be about uh, four, three, and two then. And uh, we had this custom of giving wedding anniversary presents that don't cost much. And he came to me and he said, honey, I'm going to give you a wedding anniversary present. I'm going to cut down to two beers a day. I couldn't believe it. I knew he really loved me then. And I had to give one back, so I said, I won't talk about alcohol. You know, I went back and looked. I was doing some journaling then, and I went back and looked at the writing I'd done then, and my, my promise lasted one week. He never said a word when I, when I broke my promise, took my present away. His, his promise lasted one month, as far as I know. And at the end of that month, a good friend came to town, and it was Party City, and the party just didn't end. And after about two weeks, I realized the party hadn't ended. And do you think I was as noble as he was about not saying anything? No way. I wasn't going to let this chance pass. Uh, he was down in the garage. I don't know if it's a prerequisite for this program, but I have a suspicion it is. Someday I'm going to do a survey and see how many families with a problem with alcoholism have an icebox out in the garage. <laughs> you know, we have this, we still do, we just don't have it plugged in anymore, but we have this icebox out in the garage, and back then it was fully stocked. And the way this works is, all the beers you drink in the garage don't count. <laughs> so he'd go out there and get a beer, and real quick drink it, and then get another one, come in. And I'd count that one. Well, it was also protected turf, because that was his place. And he'd go out, and he'd work at the workbench, and he could do whatever he liked, and he did a lot of things he liked out there. And that I didn't bother him too much, because, see, the house was my turf. But I invaded his turf that day when I finally realized he had taken away my wedding present, and I was going to go tell him about that, you know? And so I marched down there. We lived then in Broomfield, Colorado in another house that we don't live in now. And we lived at the end of a cul-de-sac. And right at the apex of that cul-de-sac was our garage, which happened to have the door open at that moment. Made a perfect amphitheater. And um, I went down and proceeded to let the whole neighborhood know what was wrong with my husband. Now, I didn't intend that, but I'm sure, as you can see, I have a, a not a shy, retiring voice. And I let it loose with all barrels. And I assumed that official stance, and I told him exactly what I thought of him and what I thought of what he was doing to me. And I hadn't intended to allow him to do a rebuttal. Uh, that was not in the program, but I did have to take a breath. As remarkable as it is, I do have to take a breath every once in a while. And when I did that, he jumped in. Now, he never turned around. And I can remember that long back and those broad shoulders standing there at that bench. And he had slumped, you know, the shoulders in despair. And he'd never turned around, but here his voice came, filled with, with desperation. And just like uh, he had given up, surrender. And he said to me quietly, Nancy... It's my one pleasure in life. And it was as if I had been kicked in the gut by a mule. Not too many things shut me down, and that one shut me down. I didn't say another word, but 
but I was crying, and I turned and ran up into the house, and I called the AA, because I knew something was wrong. I know now that was a spiritual awakening. I had deluded myself with denial and uh, uh, lying and all the things that we do when we say it's, this is the last one. You know, for him it was always the first one, for me it was always the last one. And I always thought this was going to be over and it was just starting. And suddenly I had that clarity that it was really a disease and I was in it. I knew that. I knew that from my end. But the only thing I knew about was AA. I didn't know about Alma. So I called out uh, AA, and I got a guy named Charlie Hall. If anybody's from Denver, you know Charlie. Bless Charlie's heart. He said, I can't come out there and talk to him unless he's the guy on the phone calling me. And I said, well, well, can't you do something? And he said, I sure can. You can talk to my wife, Lynn. I talked to Lynn many times. She was trying to convince me to go to a meeting, and I was thinking, there's no way I'm going to a meeting to tell people this is the way my life is. It didn't occur to me that everybody in that meeting would know exactly what I was talking about, and that that's why they were at that meeting. That's that terminal uniqueness that we've got. So about third phone call, that old guilt started working on me. I thought, if Lynn's working this hard to get me to a meeting, I'd better go. You know, just so I could report on the next phone call. Yeah, I finally went to that darn meeting. About that time, we had his pickup truck. We've never gotten rid of his pickup truck. Critter's still with us. But uh, he drove Critter. So I, for my car to drive to the store and take kids places, we had an old um, 39 Caddy that we had ripped the insides out of because we were going to reupholster. But we never reupholstered it. And we had the seat out, and you know, it was just this complete bare metal insides. And then I realized I had to go to the store one day and had no car, so I stick the seat back in, and I'm driving this old Cadillac with this bare insides in the seat that goes like this every time you go to a stop sign. And that's what I went to my meetings in. I threw the kids in the back, you know, this big cavernous metal back in, and I get in that seat, and I drive to my first Al-Anon meeting over there, on Washington in Thornton. It's called Mountain View. It's up above a Kirby vacuum cleaner place or something. And I go in there, and I must have looked like death, but I wouldn't know because I hadn't looked in a mirror in years. I know I weighed a lot more than I do now, and my sponsor swears that my socks didn't match. <laughs> And then she tried to convince me I had my sweater on inside out, and I said, that's not, I'm not buying that. But I walked in with these three little kids, and somebody said, there's a babysitter, took the kids. That was a relief. And then I walked into a room of people who just loved me. Now, from the time I was little, I can remember being filled with a black hole of loving that I could not fill. I could not fill with my folks' church. I could not fill with this wonderful alcoholic. I couldn't even fill this black hole of loving with three little children, as wonderful as they were. It was unfillable, but I kept trying to fill it. Nobody could love me enough to make me feel like uh, I was worth anything. I'm going to interrupt here to announce that Cindy Cecil from Torrington has an emergency phone call. If you'll go to the kitchen, I hope it's not bad news.
For the first time, I experienced unconditional love when I looked at your faces in those rooms. You didn't care if my socks didn't match and I looked like death. You didn't care if I had three screaming kids in a car that hardly ran. In fact, you said, I'll bring you the next time. Let me tell you where there's another meeting with a babysitter. And called me in the week to make sure I was coming. I never had anybody do that. You didn't even know my last name. You had no idea. And you didn't care. You didn't even ask me. You just said, keep coming back. And boy, did I ever. Well, things changed for better and for worse. What got better was I got a sponsor. I started working a program. I had a new focus. You know how it is. What got worse was the things that were happening at home because for so many years I hadn't been honest at all. This was the man I wanted his approval. I wanted him to like everything I ever did. And he never liked anything I did, but I kept trying. And so I brought home all my Al-Anon books and I laid them out on the coffee table. Now, they've changed the name of it, but there was a book that was called Living with an Alcoholic, emblazoned on the cover. And I lay that on the coffee table. It didn't occur to me, you know. Tom comes in and he sees that and he says, what the hell is that? And I said, well, these are my new Al-Anon books, you know. That there's nothing like a brand newcomer in Al-Anon. <laughs> like Odie in the Garfield strip. <laughs> I, you think the whole world's going to love it as much as you do. And so he, he looks at that and he says, put that stuff in the closet. I don't think he called it stuff. And I put that stuff in the closet. I'm glad to report today that Al-Anon is out of the closet at our house. <laughs> but it was in the closet for many years. Those first five years in the program... I just worked on me. I worked those steps. I found out in step one that the biggest relief that could happen was there for me. I knew I was powerless all the time, but people kept telling me I was responsible for taking care of their needs. And there's nothing more stressful than saying you're powerless and now you're responsible. And I bought it, and I had been buying it for a long time. And the relief of acknowledging my powerlessness was such a big relief because I could say honestly for the first time that I could really put me in perspective. First step, put me in perspective with the universe. And I didn't have to lie anymore to my kids that yes, I think I know that. You know, I love this, this slogan, progress not perfection, there's nothing more unlovable than perfection. Perfection doesn't laugh at itself. Perfection expects everyone to acknowledge that they know it all, even when you know they don't. Perfection's not honest. I was all of those things. The kids would ask me something, I wouldn't know, I'd pretend I did. And they knew and I knew. It was a lie. And my husband would expect me to take care of all the financial problems that he was incurring when I had no source of income and I had to balance that checkbook. I had no power over that checkbook at all. It was really nice to say, wait a minute, I'm just human being. There's nothing more lovable than someone who can admit their own humanness. That's what first step gave me. Second step gave me a higher power. Into this universe in which I finally found my place, it put a higher power. But this was a difficult uh, process, much more painful than first step. 
first step was a relief. Second step was a little gritchy. You see, the higher power in our family for, for about 10 years had been an alcoholic. Have you ever lived with a dethroned God? They pout. <laughs> and when I said, you know, honey, the higher power in our family, tradition two is great. You know, ultimate authority for our group. You know, I use tradition two and second step a lot. And I'd say to him, the ultimate authority in our family is not you or me. It's higher power. And he'd say, <laughs> But I kept saying it. Step two was tough because there wasn't total buy-in. <laughs> and step three was the most confusing thing I ever did in my life. First of all, I was asked to make a decision. Me, who had never made a decision, or rather a healthy decision in her life, was having to make the most important decision of my life, and that was about turning my life over to something I couldn't understand. No, I didn't understand what God was at all. I've been using everybody else's gods. I had no idea. How was I going to turn my life and will over to something I couldn't even understand? What helped me with this problem was I went to 30 meetings in 30 days in that Cadillac with those kids. And I ended up at a meeting down in Park Hill. I think there were only six people at a table in this little rectory, and one of those people was a black lady. I've never seen her since. I think she got right there by my higher power, four meetings, basically. And I was sitting right across from her, and I think the meeting was on something about God. But I can't swear to it because I never heard anything but the one thing she said, and she said to, to talking to the group, she said, my God does this for me. And it struck me like a thunderbolt. She had her very own. And I wanted one too. I couldn't believe it. That possessive pronoun in front of the word God was the, like a life change for me. I didn't have to turn my life over to anybody else's God. It was my own. The second thing that happened to help me out with this was I had a sponsor. I was in the program about three months, and I decided I didn't know enough about any of this. I needed somebody who did, and so I chose a woman who had been in a year longer. She was the epitome of knowledge. And so she helped me a lot. Besides that, she was from Kansas. She knew how to do it. And she told me about making decisions. We talked about this at breakfast this morning, Don and I, about making decisions is on a threefold level because our disease is threefold. You do it on your spiritual level, you do it on your physical level, and you do it on your emotional level. And you have these checks. And you just go through it and you say to yourself, okay, is this idea making sense? If it isn't mentally making sense, check it. But if the answer is yes, go on to the next level. There's a little poem she gave me for this. If the idea is not right, God says no. If the time is not right, God says slow. If I'm not right, God says grow. But if everything's right, God says go. And I used that for a lot of decisions I had to make. And it helped me to turn my life and will over to a God of my understanding. Now, the first God of my understanding was you all. I knew that group loved me unconditionally, and that was my idea of what my God should be doing. And I turned my life and will over to y'all. 
I didn't have to stay there for very long, but that was a safe place for a while. My first, fourth, and fifth steps were ones that I took on a higher power I'd had in my life for a long time. And I've realized now that I did my fourth and fifth steps, I've done several, on things that were higher powers in my life. I made them higher powers in my life. And the only way I could get rid of them out of my life was to do a fourth and fifth on them. And I had to do them with a sponsor and I had to do them with a program. Because, you know, when you eradicate something that you've raised to that level in your life, you're going to end up with that black hole of loving unless you've got the right program going. And the first thing in my life was my dad. I didn't do it on my husband, even though that who got me into the program I had to do it on my dad. And I remember us sitting on a park bench crying together, and I'm telling her about the way my childhood had been and the things that meant anger, incredible anger. And I was one of those sunshine people, you know, I'd rather do a laugh than a tear any day. And I had always been responsible for making everybody else happy. I didn't think I was an angry person. And I started talking, and there was so much anger. I can remember clenching my teeth when I would think of things that were making me angry about this time. And I clenched my teeth so bad, I chipped the tooth. That's a lot of anger to start welling out of one human being. I told her about this, and she looked at me with love and fear in her eyes. And she said, God damn you. And I thought, oh no, I did this wrong. And she said, I was sexually abused as a child and I never told him It was one piece she had never addressed in her own life. And through my ignorance and pain, I had approached a subject that she needed to talk about too. So we helped each other. And there is nothing better in this program and two wounded hearts mending together. It's fantastic. And we hugged each other and we cried and we did a lot of stuff. And the first meeting I was able to share that in, then she, with tears rolling down her cheeks, could say, there's a lot of us like that. And she did a lot of wrong too. You know, when you're doing a sixth and seventh, you really have to do a lot of things like get rid of self again. I really think that we... We get an idea of self in first, and we get rid of it in six and seven. You can't have any idea of self left if you're going to be humble, and you're going to be willing. You've got to say, it's not my idea, God, just whatever you're ready to take, I'm ready. And you have to have no expectations at all. You know, when you ask somebody to do something with no strings attached, there's no self-will there. And that's what six and seven did for me. And eight, make a list. Somebody like me, the Odie type, make a list. That was the most organized requirement I'd ever had. And I couldn't have done it without my sponsor. But that first step nine was a miracle I never would have believed. I had to go to my dad and say, I'm sorry I shut you out of my life and judged you to be less than human. Because that deficit in my life harmed me. And you are my dad. And I love you. He cried. And he said he was sorry. And then he shared that he had been abused as a child too. The disease we pass 
from generation to generation in these warped families. Step 10, this is my accountability. I am accountable. I live as a responsible person today because of the gifts I've been given. And 11, I'm plugged into a power that is so enormous, so incredibly powerful, that when, as occasionally happens, self blocks that, the pain is incredibly enormous. Lois, Bill Wilson's wife, said, the most powerful force in the world is love. And when it's blocked, it's the most painful. And 11 tells us that to counter the black hole of loving, instead of being the gimme, we be the gimme and we become a channel. You know, channels work real well when they're not blocked. And if we're a channel for loving, that power we're given in step 11 can do anything. We give away the power in step 2, and we get more than, more than ever humanly possible in step 11. But it can't be used to get anything for us. As it's told to us in step 12, we have a responsibility that's coupled with the greatest gift anyone can ever get. We're the lucky ones. We're the ones who will break that downward spiral of warped family relationships. We're the lucky ones that will start health for generation on generation. And our responsibility is to make sure it's there for the newcomer. Oh yeah, I still get mad. I get so mad when I walk in a meeting and the meeting is for old timers. And the newcomer sitting there has no idea what's going on because every meeting is for the newcomer. And if there's a tradition broken or if there's a non-conference approved literature or word used, that newcomer has no idea what this program means. They have no former frame of reference. They'll get just out of this program but we're doing that very minute. They don't know what we said last week or what we're going to say next week. So if we use terms that are not in our literature, or if we say things that are off the cuff and say, oh, it doesn't matter this once, we may have lost that one person. The newcomer keeps me from being complacent. I'll go sit in a meeting and they'll sing me. They'll say the thing that I worked 10 years to figure it out. It's not fair, is it? <laughs> it's not fair at all. I had the three kids growing up in Alateen, but I remember the first time I tried to haul my son to Alateen. He was big, just like my husband. He's 6'5 now and in the Navy, and he comes home and says, Hi, Mom, and he laughs and says I'm short, like it's a joke he invented. But <laughs> I remember getting in that pickup truck, and I said, Come on, honey, we're going to a meeting. He has me? And I said, Yeah, yeah, we're going to an Alateen meeting. I think that it'd help you. And he says, not me. And I said, oh, give it a try. So he gets in the truck and he thought about it a minute. And we, had, we were rolling down the street. We live on a dirt road. And rolling down the street and he thought better of it. And he says, no, no, I'm not going. I'm not going. And he opens the truck door like he thought I was going to stop. 
I kept right on driving, and he got out. And I, he's kind of like running along the truck. <laughs> We're not seeing. And um, I kept driving, and he kept running. And he says, I, I'm not going. And I said, fine, shut the door. I'm going to need a meeting after this. I'm going. <laughs> so he got back in the moving truck, and we went to the meeting. <laughs> you know, carrying this message means that what we're doing... We don't even know what we're doing then and how it's going to spread. There's a story about this. It's, uh, it's about a little boy who was on a beach and, and there had been a terrible storm. And the storm, the big waves had washed all the debris up. And it was an area where there were a lot of starfish. So it washed up these huge piles of starfish that were dying because they weren't in the ocean. And this little boy was out there throwing starfish back in the ocean. And this old man was walking down the beach and he saw this. And these piles of starfish were enormous and there's just one little boy throwing starfish back in. And that man's shaking his head and he walks up to the little boy and he says, what do you think you're doing? You know, you'll never be able to throw all these starfish in. It, it, you can't do it. It doesn't matter. The little boy never stopped him. You know? kept right on throwing starfish and he picked up one and he looked at it and he says, you know, it matters to this one. So keep carrying the message. It matters. I was telling an Alamon today that, that my life kind of went in five-year segments when I got into the program. First five years, I worked those steps for me. The second five years, I really worked on my family relationships and there's nothing like the traditions to help heal a family. And the traditions really helped. In that second five years, uh, actually at the beginning of one of those wedding anniversary presents again, when we had our 15th wedding anniversary, I said to my husband, you know, I've been in the program five years, and there's some things I want to do. Oh, I've got to backtrack. I've got to tell you something I did when I was three years in the program, just to tell you I'm not perfect. I'd been in the program three years and my sponsor was going to talk at Wyatt's. I don't know if you've ever come to Denver and heard the speakers at Wyatt's, but it's a big deal. Not this many people and you know you always want someone in the front row to make eye contact and make you feel safe. So my sponsor had asked me to come and listen to her speak when she had to speak at Wyatt's. Now my husband, we had just moved into the house that we are in now. My husband was doing this massive renovation project and he was cutting a sliding glass door into the wall where our bedroom was and extend the porch and just all this stuff. And um, it was about 10.30 in the morning of the day that she was going to speak. Now I'd known for quite a while she was going to speak but I'd been putting it off. And I went out there now just to show you how we set this up. Instead of, you know, I hadn't learned yet. It's, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission. You know, I hadn't learned that yet. And I went out there and I said, Honey, um, may I go listen to Judy at Wyatt's tonight? He's working, working. And I think he'd already had a six-pack of beer or so. And he says, well, no, we've got all this work to do. And I wasn't doing any of it. I didn't know how to help him at all. And, oh, I was so mad. He said, no. Of course, I set it up. And I looked around, and I noticed my flowers looked dry. And I start watering my flowers. And I waited till he cranked on that electrical stuff he was doing there, sawing things. And then I just hit him full force with water. See, it was easier to electrocute him than tell him I was going anyway. 
mad. He picked up that piece of wood that he was cutting and he slung it at me. And I go crying into the house and I call my sponsor and I say, I can't go listen to you talk, sis. No. And then I told her what I did. And she says, I'm coming by to get you. And I said, why? You're not speaking for three hours yet. She said, I'm coming by to get you. I think I had a better story that night than she did. <laughs> but at our fifth wedding anniversary, or let's see, that would have been our 15th, when I was in the program five years, um, I, I wanted one of those, you know, at wedding anniversaries that you get for free. Except this one was, he was supposed to stay home with the kids, and I was going to go to the first weekend in Al-Anon that Colorado had. And I said, honey, for, but I said it wrong again. I said, for my 15th wedding anniversary, I want to go to the weekend in Al-Anon. He says, that sounds fun. And he packed the camper with three cases of beer, the kids and himself, and we took off. I cried all the way up there. I knew this was going to be disastrous. I walked into that Friday night opening meeting, tears streaming down. You know how everybody does. They all come to you, hug you, say, what's the matter, honey? I said, Tom's here with three cases of beer. Oh, my gosh. Everybody said, you can sleep in my room. Well, he never drank any of that. He got deathly ill. Now, I always swear that when I say this, I am not going to laugh. <laughs> but he took the kids horseback riding the next morning and became deathly ill with a prostate infection. I didn't laugh. <laughs> and he was so sick. He was so sick. He has an expression. He says, Honey, I can't die. I've got to get better to die. He was that sick. And um, <clears throat> he was laying there on the camper, in the, on the bed in the camper, and I'd come check in. You know, I'd go to a meeting, then I'd come check in. Kids were doing fine. They were swimming, riding horses, doing all that. And I'd check in, and I'd say, How are you doing? He says, I'm sick, I'm sick. And I'd say, Oh, I'm so sorry, bye. And I'd go back to another <laughs> meeting. Well, poor guy, I know he must have been sick. He really was, because he didn't drink anything. And the next morning, we went to the spiritual meeting. I noticed you're going to have one tomorrow morning. There's nothing like a spiritual meeting, especially if you're drinking alcoholic. And um, that next morning, I, didn't, I hadn't invited him to any meetings. He just stayed in the camper. But I said, I'm going to the spiritual meeting now. And a friend was chairing it. And, and uh, he's, he liked her. In fact, he's always loved Alanons. Even when he was actively drinking, oh, man, does he love Alanons. Because see, they hug him. Get up there and hug him. Boy, he loves that. There's nothing wrong with that cowboy. And um, uh, he says, oh, Paula's cheering that little redhead. Sure, I'll go. So he went to the spiritual meeting with me. And he had a spiritual awakening. And I didn't realize how much it had affected him until, uh, in fact, he didn't even announce that he had quit drinking. He just didn't drink. Now that I had five years there of finding out what it was to live with an alcoholic who was dry but didn't have a program. And it's not wonderful. It made me work my program harder than I think I've ever had to work it. Because he was so angry. He was angry. He was not anesthetized. 
and he could see all the stuff I had been doing when he had been. <laughs> and um, the kids had found out he was a new playmate. You know, we had to readjust several things in our family. Number one, I wasn't the all-important person anymore balancing the checkbook. This guy was wide awake, and, and he wasn't drunk, and there were a lot of things that, that had to change in our family. That second five years was hard. And then he got a job in Boston. And when he moved to Boston, I don't know whether it was, and I stayed in Colorado, I don't know whether it was because he was far away or what, that's his story. But he started drinking again and he nearly died. And I got a phone call one morning, about two in the morning. And he said, Nancy, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm throwing up blood and, and I don't know what to do. Now, my higher power took him 3,000 miles away so I wouldn't get in his stuff. And that's, I had to say, I can't do a thing for you, honey. But I sure hope you can find some help. And I love you. That was the hardest phone call I ever had to hang up on. Well, his story was, the next morning, he was so scared, he went to a hospital and he thought, I think they must have AA meetings here at this hospital. And he walked in, cowboy boots and all. Who cares if you're in Boston? You wear those cowboy boots, believe me. And he walked in, and he looked at this little gray-haired lady that was running the information desk in her little candy-striped outfit, and he says, do you have an AA meeting here? She said, I believe we do. I'll just show you. And so he tells the story of her going down the hallway in front of him, this little tiny lady, and he's along, along behind her, and she opens one door, and she says, no, that's not it. And she opens another door, and she pokes her head in, and she says, hey, guys, I've got one for you. <laughs> and it'll be five years this November 4th for him. Well, uh... I see by this marvelous watch I borrowed from Diane that my time is about out, and there are a lot of things I'd go on and say, but one of the things I think that's the most important of all is in our new book, it's an Al-Anon book that just came out called In All Our Affairs. I bought it because I want to see all the affairs. <laughs> Good reading. And on page 232 in that book, it says that the program is my commitment to change. It doesn't say we'll ever stop. You know that progress? It just keeps on going. And I don't know where it's going to take me. This last five years, just like the first two sets of five years, I learned another side of the triangle. The first side of the triangle were the steps, and I used them for my personal recovery. I would have killed myself or someone else if I hadn't found them. That second side of the triangle was the traditions, and I discovered that I could have unity in my family if I put those traditions to work. And believe me, it worked. We've had a lot of troubles in our family. That oldest son I told you went to Alateen, was labeled emotionally and behaviorally disabled. He chased his brother with knives. He'd call me a bitch. And back in those times when I was not well, I'd say, honey, you're the son of one. <laughs> We had a lot of trouble. And those traditions worked in our family. And it didn't matter that no one was going to meetings during that time but me, because by my changed attitudes, I could see things changing in my family. I didn't have to tell anybody to do anything. I just had to keep my side of the street clean. 
We run meetings at our house now. And we open them with a serenity prayer, and we do a meeting, and we use a subject, and we share, and everybody's equal. This program taught me about perfect equality. We're all equal in the program. And there is nothing like running a family that way. It's beautiful, and it's scary, because mom doesn't have any more weight than anybody else. The teenagers love it. <laughs> um, this last five years, I've really learned how to start using the concepts. The concepts are like using the spirit of this program in business matters. And I have been doing a lot of service. I've been a group representative, then a district representative, I've been convention chairman, and then now I'm the, the area um, chairman, and I've done a lot of stuff. And using those concepts in my business life and in my professional life was a whole new area for me. And I used my degrees to go back into what I was trained to do, and I taught. But instead of going to regular ed, I went into special ed because of my son, and I love it. And I love what I do. But there's nothing harder than making this program work in the workplace. You know, with those normal people out there that don't know from beans? <laughs> and they act so sick, and you think, boy, you need the program. Too bad you don't drink. <laughs> And that's where I've been having to use the program a lot. And it works. And I give my kids in my little special ed classroom disguised outing, and man, does it work. And that triangle for me today means that this wonderful adventure that I'm on with you is one that never has to end, and I hope it never does. And I'm grateful for you today, and I'm grateful for you letting my heart touch yours and yours touch mine. Thank you.